Hi everyone, it's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. On this episode, I have Marcus Jimenez, and he is the founder and CEO of Briefly, a cloud-based insights reporting platform that transforms mundane data into actionable, engaging content for clients and teams. As workforces grow more mobile and data-centric, Briefly helps close the data to action gap, helping companies curate and translate data into meaningful content that drives team to act. Marcus is part of the series Founding in Color, which is now out on Peacock. Also, Black Tech Unplugged is the preferred podcast network for that series. And if you aren't familiar with that announcement, the link is in the show notes. But on this episode, we talk about Marcus and his career. He was always been entrepreneurial, but he has also a couple big names under his belt when it comes to his creative side. We also talk about what it takes to work with data, why data is so important at this day and age. And furthermore, we talk about what it's like to be a minority and a founder. And Marcus goes into great detail here with just his experience and the sacrifices he's had to make. And he even gives his own antidote around why we need to change how we define a founder. So if you're into data, if you are a founder and you're looking for someone who is similar to you, who's going through that founder journey, this episode is for you. And while I'm at it, don't forget to check out Founding in Color, which is available on Peacock right now so that you can hear from Marcus himself and several of his other counterparts what the experience is like being a founder. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do like today's episode, make sure to rate and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening. And also feel free to leave a review or if you're on social media, tag me in your post showing that you're listening to this episode. I think it's time we jump on in. So let's get it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I'm joined by a new guest. Marcus, usually I have people do something called the check-in. So you give your name, location, your title, and how long you've been a founder in, or in tech. So why don't you check in with the audience? Okay, great. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm Marcus Jimenez, the CEO and founder of Briefly. We're based out of Denver, Colorado. We've been in the space and started up back in 2018. Awesome. Now, before we jump into your founder story, I want to give my audience a full picture of you. So I want to highlight you've had your 20-year career. You were doing some strategic and creative visionary work beforehand. And in the last decade, you have provided insights and reporting solutions for global leading brands, including Citibank, Pepsi, and a few others. So you're helping them transform their data and insights into actionable content for customers and teams. So just want to talk through that a little bit. How did you get into that career path? Yeah. So I was born and raised out of the city, out of New York, and I went through high school, college there and started out in advertising and marketing. So I'm not a technical founder. I'm actually more of a design entrepreneur. And so after doing advertising and marketing for a number of years, like you had just stated for almost two decades, over the last decade, one big piece as a creative director is I was helping a lot of brands figure out brand campaigns that had already left the building. 
What a lot of people don't realize is that there's actually a lot of strategic planning work that goes into the creation of those ideas, maybe about a year to 18 months out, actually before you actually see the ads. And so quite often I was the creative director that would be brought in to help fix those ideas and develop those campaigns. And what I realized was, is that there was an opportunity to work with brands much further upstream in the process and working with the insights and strategists that would actually come up with the creative nuggets that they would then feed to the agencies. And so in doing that line of work for a number of years, I started putting pen to paper. Once I cashed in all my chips back in 2008, I was like, you know what, I've been working on campaigns for a lot of clients for a number of years. It was time for me to just do my own thing. And in starting that process and pivoting into a consultancy, we started working with a lot of brands like PepsiCo. We were featured in Digiday for that. You can actually see some of the use cases that we did there. But we were helping a lot of these brands articulate and, and break down data into more consumable bite-sized, more visually stimulating, more engaging type content. And we became really, really good at that. And for a couple of years, I put some pen to paper and had the epiphany back in 2015, 2016, like we could make this into a product. And that was the nexus of what Briefly would become. And that gives you a general lay of the land of how I started out. Basically, I was a creative kid. My introduction into the creative arts was actually through graffiti in New York. And African-American teacher that was heading up a calligraphy class in middle school was like, hey, you like to write? You need to join my calligraphy class. And from that point forward, I started working with creative pens. And then that led me to go to music and art fame. And I went to art high school. And another African-American illustrator who was my homeroom teacher, Mr. Bing, guided me through the process and was like, look, you have the gift. You can become a commercial artist. And that led me to FIT. Eventually, I left to join a Hispanic agency. So all along the way, I was a creative by birth. And eventually that translated into the cross-section of business and strategy. And so I'm a bit of a hybrid that way. I started out on my path and that's the beginnings of where my founder journey originated from. And I really appreciate you talking about the piece of being a creative and how that's looped into your puzzle pieces to the path where you are today, which I actually want to jump into. So you mentioned that you are now a founder and you are the founder of Briefly, which is a cloud-based insights reporting platform that transforms mundane data into actionable content. So Marcus, tell my listeners in more detail, how does your business work? Yeah. So just like you mentioned, it's a cloud-based system. And what we found was working with a lot of brands, you would think that, oh, you know, everything is easy. You can share information easily. And just because it's a large Fortune 5 brand that it's like, hey, they have it all put together. And what you realize is that when you look behind the curtain, a lot of these companies, they really struggle. They struggle with being able to keep distributed teams. One use case that we have is a, a pharmaceutical company out in the EU has like over 300 people across like seven different countries. And they have to use the same source of data and information and keeping them all informed in real time or as close to real time as possible. And these organizations, whether they're mid-sized or even large, they struggle with that ability. And there are hundreds of researchers that work for these companies that it's their job on a daily basis, go out and pull data that their brand teams or their marketing teams might need because they want to launch a new campaign or something, right, for a new product. And so they really struggle with being able to grab that data that's important to science and that comes in either a spreadsheet or pick your poison of however they're going to get it. But essentially, it's some big, linear, boring form of math. And they actually have to put that into some kind of content way, or they have to distribute that and send that out to a team somewhere else. And then get the team to actually not only read it, but also then be able to act on it. 
And what we found was that a lot of these companies and these researchers, they really struggled because you have teams became less reliant on desktop, right? Mobility was rising. You have a younger, more discerning workforce that really wants bite-sized content. And we're all based now in an attention economy. So your insight now and data actually now has to compete with social media feeds. It has to compete with ads that we're being bombarded with. The amount of data data we consume is just, it's insane, right? And so what's happening is, is that a lot of teams, they don't have time for a long-form read. So these researchers, they typically will have to compile all that data and insight down into like some kind of presentation or like a Canva board or some kind of PowerPoint file, drop it into an email, add links to it because the videos are too big to put into a PowerPoint deck. And then they have to send that out via email. They have no idea whether or not anybody's actually reading it, let alone putting it to use. What Briefly does is we simplify that entire reporting process. We literally streamline it so that instead of taking hours and days to create an insights report and distribute it, researchers can do that now within minutes. They can instantaneously share and collaborate on their insights with other teams, regardless of where they are, all in one protected network. And so we have been knocking around the space for a long time, for almost 10 years doing this with a lot of large brands, like I had mentioned, PepsiCo, Diageo, and, and Fox Latin America. And, and even smaller companies too, they struggle with the same thing. And so we really went to work on trying to figure out how do we stay hyper-focused on the reporting and distribution of insight. And the market research is just one industry, but we see this something being really viable across different sectors, different industries. And so that's in a nutshell, it's essentially what we do. And the platform is super easy to use. So it's like imagine reading insights or PowerPoint decks that's more like blog posts as opposed to some big, robust 400. I mean, I'm not kidding. Some of the research you get back at some of these companies, they spend millions on it. They literally will have like 400 page deep research documents that their teams need. They need the insights, but even the executives, they're like, yo, I don't want the 400 pages. They're like, don't even give me four pages. I want four bullets. Right. Tell me what I got to be able to go and get to work and put it into action. And researchers, they struggle because they're like, oh man, I don't have a mechanism to be able to do that. So briefly gives them the tool. It gives them the powers to, to be able to do that. Marcus, you skipped over something kind of briefly. So I have to go back and touch on it. And that sure. is the part about there's a science behind it, right? There's an art behind sharing data. And I think a lot of us take that for granted because, again, kind of like microwave culture, we get all this stuff in Instagram or on social media. And it looks like, wow, you bought this to me because I like something. But it really, there's a story on the background of like, hey, we took this data, manipulated it and knew how to get you the content that you needed. So I want to talk to that data piece. So from a briefly perspective, how are you all handling data? What have you learned from a data perspective that might be helpful for some of the listeners? Yes. One of the big unlocks we uncovered back in 2015 and 2016, I think as workforces grow younger and they're much more agile and more visualization is a key component. And that's really where the, the creativity comes in. A lot of people, they often get stuck with the idea that, hey, if I just make the chart pretty, that's insightful. No, it's not. True insight actually lives between the data points. It's not a data point. And that's one of the big misconceptions that I think. A lot of people, they think that data is insight. It's not. It's just fact. The uniqueness of what data can give you, though, and the power of what data has is if it's read well, is your ability to craft story from data. That's insight. So for example, you know, and I'll make this up, right? That 50% of the population loves pizza. Insight would be 
yeah, they love pizza. They love pizza that's cooked at a specific temperature that has a certain flavor and that has these toppings. That's insightful, right? That I can act on. That means that then I should know that I should market more pepperoni pizza, let's say. However, to make it attractive though, in order to make it appealing and approachable, digestible and intriguing and have stopping power, that's where the visualization, the creativity comes in. You need these two components to be able to read between the data to make it insightful, but then you have, you need a way to be able to package that. And that's really what we focus on with Briefly as a tool is that it gives you the ability to combine text, media, data together all into one story form format. That's easy to consume. You can do it on both desktop and mobile. And I think that was a big unlock for us was realizing that teams They weren't just looking for smarter information. They weren't just looking for charts. They were looking for the story. And as part of that story, it needed to be packaged up well so that people feel that they're reading something more like content and less like some academic or some theory or some presentation. Because that's just, it gets into boredom, right? You're in boredom world. When you're doing that, it's very linear. We give you a much more contextual way of being able to consume data that's wrapped around story. And I think that has been something that's proved really powerful and that worked exceptionally well in, in our custom reporting. And that's really what we went to work on, on trying to codify that into a product. And so we think we're there, but we're never content. We're never happy with just the way that it is now. We'll always be tinkering with that. And Marcus, data storytelling is your thing. That's one of your strengths. And I want you to share with the listeners because this is not an easy skill to just have. This takes time to learn. What are some resources that you've used in order to get that data storytelling strength? Yeah, it's a great question because it's true. There is no off-the-shelf thing that you can go to. I'm a firm believer that probably because I'm a hybrid myself, I'm a creative that I'm not afraid of data. So I could take a spreadsheet and curate it and cut it and slice and dice it just as good as any other strategist. But power that I have is I've got the creative ability to be able to visualize that and make that into something. Vice versa, I think if you're academically minded and you're more numbers driven, and you may not be the best creator, but you still have that same ability to be able to craft a unique story. There's something that you want that the data is telling you to be able to say. So I think the world is operating and moving more towards hybridity where people are, I call it being T-shaped. For any listener that's out there, I think if you're trying to build out your own discipline, think of being T-shaped. You're a master of something. So in the cases I just gave you, I'm a creative. So that's the base of my T. And I'm creative driven, right? I'm a creative director and I'm a graphic designer. But I have the ability to understand data and I'm a bit of a strategist. And that's where my T extends out. In the reverse, you could be someone that's academically minded, that's all about numbers and logic. And that's the base of your T, but then you try to flesh yourself out with being able to say, you know what, maybe I can pick up better charting or I can craft more storytelling and creating more long form language than just numbers, than just stating a fact. And that allows you to be able to gain some of that hybridity. When I was starting out, that's how I approached it. I kept looking at how do I learn and compensate for the things that I'm not a master in, but I should learn enough so that I could be deadly. And I think there's a little bit of got to have the humility to know like where the water's edge is for you. You're not going to be the master of everything. You shouldn't be. That's like, right? right? We don't want to do that. You need to be an expert in something. And I'm a big proponent of that. But I also feel that younger generations now, they have more information at their disposal and have more ability that it just gives them the added power to being able to flesh themselves out, to widen out and play into other spaces, right? It could be that 
your logic minded, but you take great photographs. Well, integrate that photography into your storytelling, right? Into your decks, things like that. And so the resources that I would tap into would be a cross section of stuff. I'd read Communication Arts Magazine for all the design and feed my design prowess. At the same time, I was reading things like Billion Dollar Brands. I'd look at starting with why. There are numbers of books. There's actually a great book now that I'm reading called Making Numbers Count from Chip Heath, which actually talks all about how do you cut data? How do you look at data and then find the right nuggets of information? And then how do you present that information so that's palatable and more intriguing for the end user that you're presenting it to? But for me, it was books with a lot of books. And it was diving into a lot of different perspectives by professionals in their spaces. One more question from a data side. As we mentioned, data is so important. Basically, data is making the world go round right now. And so for people listening to the podcast, I want you to share about three aspects about data that you think that everyone should know, learn, and be aware of. First and foremost, unfortunately, data, especially over the last five, six years, has just gone through manipulation. And the one thing that we need to find our way back to is actual verified data so that we're dealing in truth as opposed to misinformation. And I think that's one of the most important things that... Look, the internet and Google is basically God on earth, right? It's we ask it to tell us things. And by default, whether that's through belief or whether that's just through, unfortunately, laziness, right? That we don't want to verify. We trust that someone else verify the information. The internet is becoming more of a place that you just can't do that. You just can't go to it and ask it. Because for everything you ask the internet, the internet will give you an answer, whether it's right or wrong, it's going to give you an answer. And I always said that to my kids now. You're looking for something, for every perspective that you want to find, you're going to find it on the internet. And so I think one of the most important things is to just not spit into Alexa or, or Google, and here she goes. You don't want to just ask the question and randomly go somewhere and not verify the data. You want it coming from a very verifiable and a trusted source. And I think sourcing and getting to the core of who is providing the information, who is providing the data set is going to become of even more importance as we get into the future. Because so much data is out there and you have to be able to verify and work with actually verified data, not just the first thing that comes up at the top. Remember, the majority of the things that you're seeing at the top of a Google list is really paid ads. I think data manipulation, unfortunately, is just where we are. And we have to be a lot more disciplined, being able to make sure that we're verifying the information that we're getting before we then broadcast it and try to educate others about it. So I think for us, that's one of the most important and critical pieces is that you distribute truth, not misinformation. So I think that's really important. I think the other big piece too, there's a tendency to think that more of it is better. And that's not really true. What we found is that a lot of companies, they go through a paralysis through analysis where they're just bombarded. There's infinite levels of data that are now streaming into these companies. And what's happening is, is that at the end of the day, it takes humans to actually cut through all of that information to get to the really good nuggets that are there. And automation is not going to solve all of that. Automation is not going to get rid of the research industry or people that are within the research space or people that are dealing with data. It's not. What it's going to do is, is you're going to have to elevate above the machines to be able to know Okay, the machines have now trimmed all the fat off of the data sets that I now it's up to the humans to actually go through and then curate out. Okay, for this team, these nuggets of information are going to be critical for their business. Whereas for this team, these nuggets will be important for them. So I think as people who are 
working with data, one, the, the amount of it isn't always going to make you better. More is good to be able to have a balanced approach to developing your recommendations and working on actionable data that you can use to get to the insight. So that'll be important, but be wary of how much you intake. Because at the end of the day, you're still going to have to cut through it. Machines are not going to do it for you. They'll help you trim the fat, but to get to the real nuggets, it's going to take a human. So don't paralyze yourself by being able to get yourself inundated by too much. And then at the same time, you want to be able to look at how do you elevate above that? I think what we're going to see in the next coming years is really going to be the role and the importance of you being able to be a curator, of being able to discern between these nuggets are the ones that are really core and how do I arrange and curate the right nuggets in order for me to develop the right strategy to be able to put that into action with other teams or whoever it is that I'm supporting. So if you're someone on the outside that's supporting clients through data, that's one way to think about it. Don't just be the person that's collecting it. Really try to focus and emphasize on how do you curate it. Curation is going to be a really critical piece because as more data come into the house, you need people that can slice and dice it, that can get to really unique insight. And that's where the value proposition is for people that are working with data. But if you're a founder and you're out there and you're trying to work with using data and putting it and implementing that and putting that into action, then the key thing for you is going to be to understand, hey, to be very disciplined. Because again, there's so much available out there and you could just keep hunting and hunting and hunting and never get to the point of where you actually drive it and put it into action. So don't paralyze yourself. I think those are some key nuggets for you. Yes. And Marcus, you mentioned insights and actually helping people win. And actually, one of your models is insights plus actions equals winning. So how has Briefly helped its current customer base win with its product? What we've been doing is working with companies on a use case by use case basis to be able to help us define the product and really make it hunt. But some of the early use cases that we've had that have been really interesting has been in the EU, we were working with a research company that was helping them to distribute insights and big unlock for us, like a big insight, how people were using the tool. They created these desktop from the desk of, and what they were doing was they realized that because the video component was so easy for them to be able to deliver the insights, they were relying less on the actual charts themselves. And they would pick the one or two important key stats and create a chart. But then what they did was they were actually recording themselves and recording that week's highlight of a brand tracking study that they were then deploying. And that helped them to say, I was spending less time building out the deck itself. And now I was actually basically video vlogging my insights report weekly. And that was a big eye opener for us. We had never thought that people would use the product that way. And sure enough, it really excited the client team. And the pilot was only supposed to be for about five to eight individuals that were using the product. And that all of a sudden ramped up to about 250 people that were now accessing the product. And so that was a huge win. And that was a big piece. That was a big unlock for us that we were just like, we had never imagined. That's the thing about when you're creating a product and you're a founder, you have an idea of what you want your product to do and how people are going to use it. And then when you put it out in the world, all of that just falls apart. And then you're like, oh my God, there's this whole other way that people are actually using the product that could be more useful for them. So that was great to see. And that was a a great win for us. And Marcus, we keep mentioning your clients and your clientele, but we're not really defining them. So I just want to take a moment and say, what is your target audience? Who are you catering to? Yeah. So briefly serves two different markets. There's the market researchers. Think of them as that they're about five, 7,000 of those companies. They're like small independent consultancies or providers, kind of like mid-level businesses. These are the people that actually go out 
They're contracted by large brands to be able to go out and conduct market research on their behalf. So these are people that they conduct focus groups, but these proprietors, they're critical to the industry because they're the people that actually hit the ground and go out and collect and assemble panels to being able to collect the insights. And these businesses range from one, two-person consultants all the way up to like 1,000, 1,500-person type businesses that are just primarily their data collectors. They're the ones that go out and conduct all of the research. So that's one side of the market. However, these researchers, they're contracted by large companies. And so we created briefly to being able to address those two markets, the market researchers that are on the outside, and then the people that are inside the building, the insights professionals, actually the corporate researchers actually have to take that information and then share that with their team. No matter how far along you are on your entrepreneurial journey, there are moments when you may feel isolated, stressed, or grapple with imposter syndrome. Just know that you are not alone and perspectives from other founders that have overcome the same challenges can make all the difference. Comcast NBC Universal's Lyft Labs offers you that perspective by giving a platform to Black and Latino founders navigating the startup world and life's everyday challenges in season two of Founding in Color. This three-part docuseries lets you hear directly from underrepresented founders. As local sports network founder Dustin McMahon puts it, every time our company reaches a new milestone, I get further and further away from people who look like me. Each episode of Founding in Color offers up gems from startup founders like pop viewers Chris Weatherspoon and Felicity Ogimokan of Unscripted TV, that'll make you think and inspire you to action. Whether your business is still an idea or you're pitching to a VC for funding to scale to the next level, this is a series to watch. You can now watch all three episodes of Founding in Color on Peacock. Thank you for sharing about Briefly and everything that you all do. And I do want to switch gears and talk to the founder piece because as we know, being a founder is tough and we can see and hear about your journey in the Founding in Color series which is available on Peacock and Xfinity now. But I don't think people truly understand the journey and the hours and the money that goes into making your vision come true. So I want to hear from you in your own words. What is it like being a founder? I look at being a founder in two parts. There's the the mechanics, which I think is key piece. Look, I had always been entrepreneurial. I think I was just born that way. And you hear me talk about that in the Founding in Color series in episode three, catch that. But I've always been entrepreneurial. I had a small consultancy when I was in New York right before 9-11. I was really young. I had no idea what the hell I was doing, but I had a content creation studio and was figuring things out. And 9-11 came, that went down. I came out West to start a Hispanic division for an agency that was Omnicom owned. And no one had ever done it before, what I was doing. And so to be a founder means to operate in white space. And that has always intrigued me. The idea of creating the thing that nobody thought to do or nobody has done before there's nothing like it. There's nothing in the world like that. And so creating ideas and bringing them into the world takes an incredibly difficult thing to do, right? There's so many reasons to not do it, that finding the reasons to do it, to wake up every day and to try to tackle it and go out again, you have to be driven in order to do it and find success. You just have to be. And so I think being a founder, you're really signing up for, it's a world of hurt. The analogy that I always use is, Being a true founder is actually like being the captain of a ship, knowing that there's a storm ahead of you and you're not going to swim around it. You swim into the storm. You sail right into it. 
And that's what being a founder really is because you have no idea where it's going to come from every day. Every day is always something new, but the, and that has got to invigorate you. That has got to make you excited. And if you don't have that and you don't have the stomach for that or the flesh for that, there are other easier, faster ways to make a decent, good living and to grow wealth. There are much easier ways to do it. Now, being an ethnic founder, that's a whole other gambit. Well, let's jump into that a little bit. What has your experience been and what advice would you have for someone that's a person of color that's a founder? Yeah, I, it, look, it's lonely. It is a lonely place. And that that more than anything is the thing that stands out in your mind is that, and the higher up you go, the less, the less and less you're going to see people like you. That's just the fact. Until we have more founders, until we have more of us getting into the space and really, to, look, to be honest with you, I always felt like ethnic individuals and, and the ethnic community, Black, Hispanic, Asian, we have always been founders. I think the difference now is that before they were always seen as like consultants, freelancers, independent store owners, they're founders too. The 14-year-old girl that manages the payroll or manages the, the bookkeeping for her dad's construction business, for her daddy that might be from Mexico, brain that may have come here whether he was legal or illegal and working a business and, and does produces thousands and thousands of dollars in home building services and provides that, that little 14, 15 year old girl is a CEO and founder of a company. It's just not legitimized. He had always been doing that, right? Bodega store owners, they're founders too. They just don't fall into the definition of startup founder. They're not defined that way. If, I, if there's anything I can do and spend time doing, it's going to be broadening the definition of what founder is and really applying the best practices that I've been able to learn and take that into other communities and being able to, you know, systematically sort of like organize it and develop it, right? Because we've always been there. But to be an ethnic founder in this world, in this environment, and where we want to play, especially in tech, it's a lonely place. We get into this in the show. And that's what I love most about the series itself is that it's not just a one and done, you watch the thing and then you're done. They are learning lessons in there. We got into real talk of what it takes to be an ethnic founder and to go through that daily grind and that hustle. And there's a level of humility that you have to have as being a founder. The things that kill you are the things that you don't know. And there is a ton that you don't know as an ethnic founder. You, you got to figure this out. And the difference between an ethnic founder and a non-ethnic one is the fact that we don't get the do-over. We don't get the get-out-of-jail card. There is no safety net. When we screw up, that's the mortgage payment not being made, right? That's right. Rent, right. That's rent not being paid. That's maybe a light bill that doesn't get paid. I'm telling you, in this series, we get into that. We get into some of that real talk, which is we don't have that ability to get the do-over. We don't get that. If you don't win, then ain't nobody coming around to help you. Whereas when you're not an ethnic founder, it's in the news everywhere. How many times can somebody screw up billions of dollars and they get funded again for almost another half billion? In what world? Does an ethnic founder get that? We don't. And right. so the loneliness, the mental strength and the fortitude that you need to have and having the humility to realize like, you know what, maybe I am going through depression. Maybe I do need to have some therapy, but it's, it's, it's a stigma in the ethnic community. You know what I mean? You tell your family that you've seen a therapist, you know, everybody going to look at you a little sus, right? They're going to look at you right. like, hold up. Like, hold up. You know, Mike's right. Yeah. Like why? And look, we're raised this way. One of the biggest ones that I talk about in the series has to do with finances. And that's a shackle. That is a shackle that has bound our community and bound us as founders in that we were raised to think that debt equals death. 
you never take on debt. And our parents taught us that. But the reality is, if you want to grow a company and you want to get to scale, you really want to be able to do the jump, you have better learn to operate in debt. We talked about this behind the scenes. You may have like a small little restaurant, and but you know what? Your $7,000 fridge goes out. What are you going to do? You're going to take payroll money to pay that? No, you're going to take out a credit card. You're going to pay that $7,000. Then you know what you got to do? You got to go on. You got to hustle and make $14,000 next month. That's what you got to do. But we were never taught that. We were never taught to utilize debt as a vehicle, as a tool in the arsenal to being able to get up to scale and being able to navigate through that world. I had to learn all of that on my own. And that's what I mean. It's a lonely place. Like you mentioned, it's lonely. There's a lot of lessons to learn. But one question that comes to my mind is how do we get more people of color in the space as founders? What do we need to do? What do we need to change? I think one big thing is the redefinition. I really think that we have to broaden the definition of what founding a company is, because I think a lot of people don't realize that if they're at home and they have a small little cricket printing business, they're a founder. I think our industry, we've done a lot to ostracize. I also think that the space itself has also been gamified. Being a founder now is like a lifestyle thing. Mm -hmm. And people just want to live the lifestyle. They're not in it for the win. Many people think that, oh, to be a founder and to win means I have to get funded. That's not winning. That's just getting a job. That's getting a boss. I think we have to broaden the definition. And I, I think if we do, that in and of itself will give license and will help sort of diminish this sort of imposter syndrome that people think that they had. Like I had it. I was like, wait a minute, you know, like all those, like, think about it, right? I'd already been in business for almost 10 years by myself, making a successful business, having revenue in the millions of dollars over that span of time. And the reality of all of that happening, it wasn't until I got into an accelerator and I'm sitting in there and I'm thinking, oh man, I have this imposter syndrome, like I don't belong here. And you know what? I have more authority in that room than any of the other founders that I was in there with. I had more experience. I had more wisdom to offer. And so I think by broadening that definition will help lower that sense of imposter syndrome that I think a lot of people have. I also think that a big piece of it too just has to do with people have to learn to realize that they are founders, but they may have the inkling to be a founder and they think they have to be a technical one. I don't write a line of code. I'm lucky if I could actually even quantify and and verify JSON when my engineers hand it to me. You know, I'm smart and I can design, I can web design, I can do all those other things, but I can't. I'm not an engineer. And I think people are stigmatized thinking that in order to be a startup founder, you have got to write code. And that's not true at all. I think what they're not realizing is that in this space, there's room for all of us. There is room for all of us. Just have the humility to realize that, you know what, you may not write code, you have better find yourself someone that can write code and figure out a way to be able to get your product right to market. But I think people are stigmatized. I think they think that they have to write code. They have to be an engineer. Broadening the definition of what a founder is. That's so important, isn't it? That's why everyone's stuck. We're stuck on the semantics and even sometimes the way things look. When in reality, we've been founders, like you said, all along. And so we have to break out of that notion that there's one look of what a founder is and what they're supposed to be. But one thing I wanted to go back on that you mentioned is the sacrifices that you've had to make as a founder. So I want to have you share with the listeners, what are some of the sacrifices you've had to make in order to create Beefly? The biggest one, the biggest sacrifice that I, I may never live down is that when I was a founder, when I was starting on my consultancy, you know, I was in a room 
over at PepsiCo, they had, they had called us up and they were like, hey, look, we want you to come out and help us. And at the time, these are phenomenal people. You know, Frank will never let me live it down, but I got to have to mention it because he was in the room, Scott Finlow, you know, Lauren Scott. And, and uh, Lauren Scott's a really good friend of mine now. We've been, done work for over a decade now. But Frank Cooper was in the room and we were presenting to Frank. He wanted to talk to us in my consultancy about, hey, helping us to sort of like codify a specific strategic plan that he was looking to develop. And he wanted us to lead that and, and help articulate what some of that would be as a partner with him. And in that meeting, my wife was pregnant with my firstborn, with Joaquin, and my cell phone was blowing up. I couldn't answer because Frank was in the middle of talking and we were wrapping up this meeting and I was, you know, slated. I was jumping on a flight later that night to be able to go back home. And my wife went into early labor with my son and I had to run back. And I never told Frank, I didn't tell him because my phone was going crazy. And when I answered the phone, I we ended the meeting, did everything that we had to do and I you know, walked out and ran back to the airport. I had to rebook flights and get back. And I missed the, the birth of my firstborn to create the company that I would eventually launch briefly. And that was immensely painful to have missed my son's birth. But like I said, you never know what's going to come at you when you're a founder every day. And we were totally fine. We, we were not due to go into labor for another couple of weeks. And it just so happened that on that day, you know, my son decided to be born. He needed to come out and that was it. And no matter what I could do, I can't reverse time. And that was immensely painful, but my son was born a Pepsi kid. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, he was the Pepsi baby. And so, and that's something that's really unique. And that's bonded me and Frank. And, and there are unique moments like that, that bond you to certain individuals. I think in order to launch briefly, and I talk about this in the, in the episode as well, one of the biggest sacrifices I had to do, I'll never forget when we were a consultancy we had reached this cross in the road that we had to take. And it was either going to be, did we want to double down and really grow the consultancy and the agency side? Or do I pivot and invest towards taking us into product with Briefly? Briefly was a concept that was now starting to become formalized. And because we're bootstrapping, we had to make these choices. And just realizing where the market was headed on the agency side it just wasn't a place that I saw that we were going to have as much growth. And I had to make a decision. And that decision, when I did, it was very painful. It took me months to get over, but it came down to having to lay people off. If we were going to make a move in order to do certain things. And, and these are people that had been with me right out of college. I had hired them right out of school and they were with me for like four or five years. But it was immensely painful to have to lay off people in order to be able to save the company and move it in a direction that had the best opportunity for growth. And then I told them, you know, maybe one day I, I can grow it to a point and scale it enough that I can come back and hire you again. But I couldn't ask them to do that at no cost. I couldn't, having them just believe in the dream, their careers mattered. And so we equipped them with technology as much as we could, gave them services and just tried to figure out whatever we could and gave them recommendations to try to get them into really good places. And many of them, their careers have taken off and they've excelled and they're doing great. But it was painful for me as a founder, knowing that I had impacted so many people's lives and that I had to lay people off and it took me months to get over that. You know, and that was, that was something that I'll never forget. And that, that sears in your mind, the impact that you have on people's lives and their livelihoods and, and what that means. Because like I said, right now, being a starter founder is like lifestyle. You know, they want to wear a hoodie. They want to wear, you know, their logo on a shirt and just say that they have their own company. And that's cute when you launch things, survive, get to month nine, 10, month 14 and make payroll and pay your light do that, then you're really founding. But launching is not founding. 
That's just cute. Oh, that's a key right there. And I definitely appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, Marcus, we've talked about a lot today. We talked about briefly, we talk about your experience as a founder, and I want to just open the floor. Anything we haven't shared thus far that you want to share with the listeners that would be helpful for them on their journey? Look, it's a grind, but you have the ability to do it. If you have an idea and you are disciplined at finding time, because you're going to have to find the time. You might be working right now and you may think, oh, you know, I just don't have the time or no one's going to believe in the idea. You need to listen to yourself. You need to listen to that voice in your head. And if it's telling you that you need to work on it, you don't have to quit your job to do it. You got spare time. You're on a train going somewhere. You're in transit, getting to your job and you have the ability to listen to podcasts. You have the ability to grab a journal, jot down your notes and start putting your pen to paper to figure out what you want to do and to launch a company and be a founder. I highly encourage you to do it because whether you do it now or you do it when you're 50, at the end of the day, you don't want to live with regrets. You want to be able to leave it all on the field. So I'm a firm believer that if you have the ambition and you have the ability to have the discipline to do it, do it. Just scratch the itch, scratch it. Because even if it doesn't happen, you have no idea where the idea can take you, right? You have no idea. And it's better that you try to just leave things all on the field. And number two, we need more people of color venturing into this space. And if you are someone that's at home and you think that this little side thing is really not a company, I'm really not a founder, I'm just doing this little side thing, you do custom. Look, I'm into custom shoe design. That's actually, that's another thing that I'm working on now. I got a spring collection that's coming out. And I picked that up and it just became something that is a passion point of mine and something that I love doing. But I'm an entrepreneur like that. I'm serial like that. And so I think we have to be okay with realizing that we are founders. Define yourself as one. Own that. Step into the space. Step into the arena. And it's okay. You don't have to be backed by some venture group. You don't have to have somebody giving you money. You don't have to have gone through an accelerator. You don't have to do any of those things to legitimately be a bona fide founder. You don't need to have any of those things. You know what you need? You need an idea and you need some level of discipline to being able to put that idea into practice and moving that into the real world. And if you're doing that, you're a founder and you need to own that. Don't let others define who you are. I think those are the two big things. But the last piece that I would leave people with is have a sense of humility. There's a lot more that you don't know than you do. Look, as ethnic founders, we got a lot of bravado and we got a lot of angst that we bring with us because we had to fight so hard to get into the rooms that we carry that fight with us when we get in the room. And we have to have that level of humility of realizing that, you know, what is no longer a fight like that. And there are more people that are probably there to listen, to help, than we're probably giving them license to do. And take the wins. Don't just look at the negatives. Look at the positives and everything that you can do and nothing is ever a loss. It's just a lesson. And I think if you can do that, keep the discipline, keep your nose to the ground and, and keep the hustle going, own the space, own that you are a founder if you have an idea and have the humility, have the humility to take the help. You know what I mean? Take the wins as they come and don't take them as losses, just take them as lessons. If you can do that, that should put you on a path to success. Really great advice, Marcus. And last thing, how can myself and my listeners support you and briefly? Well, number one, look, you could sign up and get a free account. You know what I mean? If you want it, you could use it to create some content. It's going to give you some limitations, but I'd love to get any feedback. Right now where we are is just getting as much customer feedback 
on the product itself. If you head to www.briefly, which is B-R-E-E-F-L-Y.io, it'll give you an overview of the content of what Briefly does as a platform. You can sign up for a free account. There's no credit card up front. You get a two-week free trial right out of the gate. It would be great if anybody did sign up. I would immensely welcome any feedback that you could give me on the product. Even if it's not a product that you would use, you have no idea how much customer feedback is so important to creating a, a real industry-leading kind of SaaS product. It's super critical to get. I ask all of your listeners, if you don't mind, if you got a couple minutes to share, please sign up and then hit that support link and just tell us, hey, look, this stuff is great. You know, this stuff could be better. And I'll come back to you and hit you up once I get all the shoe stuff out for the spring collection. I think you might dig it. Awesome. I know I will. But Marcus, thank you for your time today. Thank you for sharing about Briefly. And I wish you much success in the future. So just want to say thank you again for sharing your story. I appreciate it. Okay, great. Thank you so much for the time and the platform. And you're doing great work. You know? So thank you for doing this. And thank you for creating this podcast and creating this space. Thank you for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the show on all social media platforms under Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode. And if you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It will help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.